Hello, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where a philosophy teacher, that's me, and his former student who's currently studying philosophy in college, that's me, discuss a variety of philosophical topics, review famous philosophy quotes, and of course, so, so much more, all towards the purposes of leading a good life. Welcome to episode two. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. It's um, it's a little too cold outside for my taste today. I think it's at 50 degrees or so. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really good. Uh, you know, it's it's a wonderful Saturday. Um, I've had my morning coffee and uh, reading time, and uh, so all is well. Our cat uh, currently, we, we have three cats and two dogs. Uh, so our youngest cat, James, currently has a urinary tract infection. Uh, and so that's what counts for high drama in my life these days. Uh, so, <laughs> but he'll be fine. Of course, modern medicine is a wonderful thing. But yeah, all, all is well. Oh my gosh, that's that sounds like an eventful, eventful start to your uh, supposedly peaceful weekend. Well, giving cats medicine is is a chore, that's for sure. Um you know, put on welding gloves because it's going to get <laughs> ugly. <laughs> Dog, you just give them some some peanut butter and they're happy. But uh, <laughs> but with cats, especially if it's oral, yeesh. Anyway, uh, I digress. So, Andrew, what is in your reading pile this week? Finally, finishing up a few of those from last week. On the name of the rose is taking me a little bit longer than I thought it would. But the only really new one, I guess, that I've started is. It's called On Virtue Ethics by Rosalind Hursthouse. At least from what I've heard, it's it's the best place to start on modern conception of virtue ethics, looking back at all of those virtue ethicists from the past and compiling it into a viewing for kind of a modern audience. Okay, I've spent so like a modern, modern context of it. Right. So I think they kind of reinterpret some of virtues. Aristotle gives 12 or so virtues, I believe, and Aquinas sweeps back and kind of amends the list. And virtue ethicists for ages have been adding and subtracting, mm-hmm. trying to kind of put them all in one place and see what doesn't work and what works, at least from the first few chapters that I have read from it. How about you? Oh, that's really interesting um, because I've I've been dipping my toes into the virtue ethics, well, especially through the Stoics right. recently. And I actually have on your recommendation, I have Aristotle's, oh boy, how do you pronounce it? I say Nicomachean ethics. I haven't. Nicomachean. I don't know if that's the, the right way to pronounce it or not. Right. Well, However you pronounce it. Uh, I have it in my stack here, but I'm not to it yet. That's cool. Well, I am. Uh, I just finished Epictetus yesterday morning, his discourses. Oh, wow. I enjoyed it. I certainly will reference back to it, I'm sure, frequently. But I think what I'm going to do for my breakfast time reading uh, is is I have Seneca now. So I think I'm going to read his letters. Oh. I've, flipped, I've flipped through it. And I think his letters are short enough that, uh, you know, it could, it could be a, a, t- a 10 minute 12 minute reading in the morning time and for sure uh, think about it for a little bit and then move on. And then my other, my other book is the same one from last week. I'm still in uh, Josiah Royce's the philosophy of loyalty, but, but I'm getting, getting along into it and uh, we'll probably have that wrapped up by next week. I know um, this, the Seneca I picked up and I was, I was trying to do kind of a similar thing. I got a little distracted, but uh, Seneca, he, I don't know. He feels a lot more. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to insult him because he's 
He's Seneca. Uh, and I'm not <laughs> trying to insult him. He's. I feel like he's a little bit less fun to read, but it's more more stern and he covers a lot of ground. You know, I think he has how many letters does he have? He has quite a few. Oh, I don't know how many, but it's it's not a, a thin book. No. <laughs> which which edition do you have of it? So it's the Penguin Classics version, okay. Seneca Letters from a Stoic. Yeah, I, I know we're probably rambling on this uh, topic too much, but I know a few of the editions they they like cut it out to his most famous ones, but I think that's I'm sure it's one of the full ones. Yeah, it's similar with Montaigne and his essays. It's right. like I don't know how <laughs> right. many essays he wrote, but you know, if you pick up the Penguin's Classic, it's like his best ones or his most accessible ones or popular ones or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, Let's see. Do you want to introduce this or do you want me to do it? The Plato. This week we're going to be covering one of the most kind of tales in philosophy. It's Plato's allegory of the cave. It's either in book six or book seven. It's seven. Okay. That's what I was thinking. It's in book seven of Plato's Republic. I think it's at least the first half of that. Uh, so, Mr. Parsons, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I will. I'll walk us through the the allegory itself, and then uh, and then Andrew will bring us some analysis and application of that. I guess one of the reasons the allegory of the cave is is so popular even still to this day is it it of course addresses a number of fundamental ideas related to philosophy, but he really universalizes them and. You know, a lot of philosophers, of course, talk about very important fundamental ideas, but perhaps those philosophers fade uh, with time or their ideas or their application of those ideas aren't as aren't as universal as as Plato's here. And it's a very simple telling, but it's a very applicable telling. So so the allegory of the cave, like Andrew said, is in book seven of Plato's Republic. I want to point out that as far as a literary style, an allegory is well, everything that is in an allegory or much of everything that is in an allegory is meant to be symbolic. So as I go through this reading in, in a very literal sense, you, the listener, consider what some of these things that I'm talking about could be symbolic of. And, and being that it's an allegory, it also means that you don't have to consider things uh, logically necessarily. We are going to be talking about prisoners in a cave who have been there all their life. Um, who have been chained up all their life, please don't, you know, think about like, well, what do they do for food or or where do they use the bathroom or or something like that? Uh, Those types of things aren't, uh, or don't need to be considered in an allegory, but here's how it goes. and, And I'll do my best. So in the allegory of the cave, you have prisoners who are in the bottom of a very deep cave. They're sitting on the floor. They're chained to the floor. And they, their necks are even chained to where they cannot turn their heads left or right. They can only look forward. And they have never moved, and they have been in this position since their very birth. And as they're sitting on the floor of this cave, they are facing a wall. And on the wall, they see before them shadows moving back and forth across it. So behind them, on a rise, is a fire. Now, they don't know that the fire's back there because they can't turn their heads, but there's a fire, and as you can imagine, a fire in a cave would provide some amount of light, but it would be very dim light. And in between the prisoners and the fire, 
is a walkway. And on this walkway, you have people walking back and forth, holding up shapes of things. Uh, when I talk to students about this uh, allegory, I, I sometimes use the idea of cardboard cutouts. If you can imagine uh, someone taking a big piece of cardboard and cutting out a tree or cutting out a human or cutting out a, a cat or a dog and sticking it on a, on a pole and kind of holding it up in the air, um, that is what the shadows are that are on the wall that the prisoners are looking at. So people are walking back and forth on this sidewalk, if you will, and there is a fire behind them and it is casting the shadows of the things that they are carrying on the wall. Now, again, it's important to remember the prisoners have no idea that this is going on behind them. All they can see is the shadows on the wall before them. And I think another thing important to consider is, is the nature of, of the type of light that comes from a fire. It's going to be flickering. It's not a solid, consistent light, as you would think of like a floodlight. Uh, it's constantly flickering and moving and therefore almost obscuring the shadows that are on the wall, which shadows themselves are already obscured. And so at this point in the allegory, a prisoner is released from his chains. And when this prisoner is released, he stands up for the very first time in his life and turns around and sees what is behind him. And he sees the fire and he sees the cutouts, the puppets that are going back and forth. And of course, as you can imagine, he's confounded by this. He's wildly confused. And of course, the, the fire is much brighter because, or the light is brighter because he's looking at the fire as opposed to uh, how it's represented on the wall in a sort of dim yellow light. Now it's a bright light and he's dazzled by this. And of course, he has a difficult time conceiving and making the connection between these puppets going back and forth and the shadows there on the wall. But eventually he, he figures it out. And then again, we, we, we don't know all the details of this, but once he deals with this situation for a while, he is dragged out of the cave. He is, as the, as the text says, he is dragged up the rough ascent of the cave out into the light of the day. Now you can imagine the light of, of the day compared to the dim light of a fire inside of a cave would be even far more uh, dazzling, if you will. Um, I'm sure, you know, it's a hand over the eyes and it's squinting and barely even being able to see when he's pulled out of the cave. And so rather than look at the sun, of course, naturally, the, the first thing he does is sort of look to the ground and he looks at the shadows of things. He sees the shadows of trees and he sees that this shadow of this tree that is before him is much more real than the cardboard cutout of the shadow or, or the, uh, of the tree that was down in the cave and certainly much more real than the shadow that was on the wall of the cave, the shadow of the tree that was on the wall of the cave. And so this is one step closer to reality, looking at the shadow of the real tree out in the world, but it's still not the tree. He's looking at the shadow of its leaves and branches on the ground. And then to help adjust to the light, he looks at, uh, he begins to look at the reflections of things in water. You know, if you think about a time before mirrors existed, uh, in Plato's time, one of the very few ways you would be able to see your reflection, see what you even looked like, was to look into a 
a body of water, a pool of water that was smooth and glassy enough that it would reflect. And so this prisoner looks at the reflection of things in the water, and he's a bit closer to the reality. And then to help continue adjust his light to reality, to looking at, say, this tree. He looks at the tree at nighttime in the moonlight. And, uh, and again, he's finally able to look at the tree itself. But again, it, it's in the moonlight. And, uh, you know, you can think of perhaps a time in your life where you've been outside, especially during a full moon, and just seeing how the world is so awash in this, this beautiful silver light. Um, that is what this prisoner experiences when he looks at the tree in reality, in the moonlight. And then finally, after all of this adjustment to looking at things outside of the cave, he is only then able to look at the sun. And it is then that when he looks at the sun, he is able to reason about it and understand the process that he's gone through from that being a prisoner on the cave floor to this moment of standing outside of the cave in the light of the day, looking at the sun. So it is at this point, the prisoner now has to consider, now that he understands the conditions and where he stands in existence and what is real and what is perhaps less real, he then considers whether or not he should go back down into the cave. And if he did go back down into the cave, what kind of wisdom would be found there? And how would he relate to his former prisoners? And how would they relate to him now that he understands what a tree truly is versus the very ill-formed puppet version that is a, but a shadow on the wall? What, what would they indeed think of him as he tries to explain what a tree truly is? So, you know, Plato provides an answer for that, and, and we'll get to that here at the end. But, but that is the allegory without really trying to provide a, a whole lot of, of commentary on it. So, Andrew, where does, this, uh, where does this take us? One of the things that Mr. Parsons asked you to keep reflecting on when he was telling to remember the symbols that Plato and Socrates kept referring to in this story. And I think, of course, these symbols, this entire story can be interpreted from a multitude of different ways. But just going purely from Republic, Plato says that this allegory is meant to compare the effect of education and the lack of it in our nature. So I think that's, that's a good place to start. Yeah, if I could interject, uh, the, the sure. opening line to that is actually, now then, I said, take the following parable of education and ignorance as a picture of the condition of our nature. Right. And just a little bit of context. I believe Plato, you know, he's just finished in book six talking with, with Glaucon about education, Socrates' ideal form of education, and what that may look like. Of course, he's talked a little bit so far about his idea of forms. And so I think this story has, it obviously has a combination of those two ideas. We can kind of start from the top. Should we start with a little bit of background about forms? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's another thing to think about. Do we want to dive into, gosh, Plato's conception of the world of forms and the world of ideas? I mean, maybe uh, yeah. a little brief. A, a brief one. Yeah. And this idea of forms is so fascinating on it. We can certainly make more episodes 
out of that by itself. Uh, But just a very, very brief description, I think, is Plato conceived of, I guess it's two different types of realms, conceives of one realm, the physical world that we are, like our bodies are in our bodies and souls are existing and living in the moment. And then he conceives of this other world where it's this world of complete forms. And these forms are, I think they're, they're described as kind of the ideal nature, the ideal creation the ideal embodiment mm-hmm. of really anything right oh i think you're right i mean the, the the term idealism really kind of begins yes the the idea that there is something out there that is that is a perfect form of of whatever right his his forms can exist in in a lot of different levels one that talked about in 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 class i remember maybe i won't go with the blarg thing i don't remember if that was that <laughs> was. but okay okay that's what i was thinking of and i think it's a great example um so if i go outside right now and i'll, I'll, I'll look in my front yard and i'll see a pine tree you know i'll look at it and kind of observe it i'll observe that it has pine needles uh it's it's kind of tall but it has qualities of, of a pine tree but if i go up north and and i go to an apple farm for instance I'm going to see a very different type of tree. You know, it's going to be a thick apple tree. It's going to be producing red, red pieces of fruit from its limbs. In both of those cases, I still recognize that it is a tree. Plato and Socrates, I, I suppose, would conceive that there's some kind of underlying characteristic or form that these two trees share. These qualities, the form of, of, the, of the tree, is that, is that kind of right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you might even, it, they might even go as far as to say, like, there's a perfect form of an apple tree, and there's a perfect form of a loblolly right. pine. So I think that's a good, good kind of place to start. I wanted to mention the, the idea of forms. One of the most important things that Mr. Parsons kept highlighting was light. Um, and I think that's, that's something very important in this allegory. He described the flickering light of the fire and then the the light of kind of the moonlight and then the sun, the mm-hmm. light that the sun produces, quite important. Uh, the sun presentation in this allegory of Plato's ultimate form, the form of the good. Mr. Parsons, he did a great job of when the prisoner came out mm-hmm. of the cave, he was kind of blinded uh, from the light. And so I think that Plato's using the sun to represent the form of the good. And much, much like, you know, the sun illuminates all things and and kind of is uncomfortable to look at when you're in contact with it in first, uh, the form of the good also uh, illuminates all things. There's, there's goodness in all of these forms. When you come in contact with it, it can be painful, uh, but it can also be illuminating. And the question I think Mr. Parsons for you is how do we get to all, how do we reach this form of the good? (laughs) How do we get to staring at the sun? Yeah, boy. Well, I think it's through hard work and and, and years of of hard work. You know, um, Plato refers to people who have emerged from the cave as the enlightened. Uh, I don't know how that might come out in a different translation, but the enlightened you know, he always had this concept of that society should be ruled by philosopher kings. I don't know what enlightened means to to you or to anyone else. Um, I also think, you know, of, of the word wise or maybe an elder. 
like a village elder, someone who has lived enough life and has has gone through enough cycles of, of birth and death with others that um, that they understand reality in a way that perhaps someone who's younger doesn't. And and you know when you think of the enlightened, you know how quickly can you get there? It would take a person a lifetime to get to a a position where they would be considered someone who's wise. In my translation, Plato writes, I guess, the last, the, when he's describing the form of the good, he describes it kind of as the last thing to be seen and is only reached with difficulty. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's a, you know, a, a lot of the, uh, the, the ideas that come up in this allegory deals with issues of knowledge itself and, and a great question regarding like, how do we come to a place of enlightenment if that's a word to use, how do we come to a place of being a learned person? P- part of that is, is if you will, academic, like book smarts, you know, involving yourself in a discipline. But also some of that is life experience. It's, it's experiential. And, uh, you know, there's some things that cannot be learned in a book, but can only be learned through experience. And so I think it's a combination of both of those things, which is why I, I say, you know, you might be able to become academically enlightened or academically learned at a very early age, but without the experiences that life brings in terms of different phases of a life, um, I I think it's really a a fundamental issue or question about knowledge itself. Um, You know, you have academics and you have experience and they're both valuable and, and you can't cast one aside for the other. That's something that, you know, when you dive into Nicomachean ethics, that's one of Aristotle's favorite sounding boards. So mm. uh, so I have a question for you. Sure. When he was in the cave and, you know, he was looking, or, or the prisoner, uh, when they were looking at um, those shadows on the wall, what, what would that symbolize? What would the, the false symbols, I mean, they're not really false, but they're not accurate and, and really true descriptions of those real tangible things and what would that fire if the sun is is the true form of the good what is that fire that's kind of producing not fake light but it's not natural light so the shadows on the wall and the fire and you know the reflections in the water and the moonlight outside i think all of those represent different stages of of enlightenment is the is the shadow on the wall false well, no, it's not. It is a very poor representation of what is the real thing. And it's multiple degrees from what the real thing is, because the next step from the shadow of the tree on the wall is, of course, the cardboard cutout of the tree of the wall. And that's not near what an actual tree is either. So I, I, look, at the, I look at the fire and the shadows and, and all of that as, as stages of enlightenment. And I do like in the text, you know, once the prisoner looks at the sun, he finally looks at the sun. Uh, Plato, it's Plato who's writing it. You've referenced this earlier. The character in the the story is actually Socrates who's telling the the allegory, but um, whoever's saying it, Plato or Socrates, uh, you know, he says the prisoner looks at the sun and only then is he able to reason about it. And I find that to be a really interesting line. Um, you know, was was the prisoner not reasoning about things when he 
you know, was looking at the shadows on the ground of the tree or looking at the reflection in the pool. Um, you know, what does that say about stages of enlightenment? Um, uh, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> the best way that I've heard, I think, this explained to me when with this form of the good, right? He looks up at the sun and, and he can finally reason about things. Um, imagine uh, another uh, imagery kind of situation here, but imagine that you're in a completely dark room, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Like there's there's no light at all, nowhere, not through like the cracks of the door or anything. It doesn't matter if you have the capacity to see or not, right? Um, it doesn't matter if you have this optic nerve that translates light into whatever it's supposed to be. If there's no light, you're not going to see a thing in this room. And I think this is kind of similar to this development of reason that's that's occurring within this person. If you do not have, I mean, Socrates and Plato would say that everyone has this natural ability to reason. Mm-hmm. So ha- they have the ability to do so. But if they don't have this access to these forms that they've taken through reasoning, they're not going to be able to make true and real knowledge about things around them. And I think that's what that's what Socrates is concerned about. And I think that's what he's kind of going towards with education. Education is meant, I guess his type of education is meant to allow someone to make true and, and accurate discoveries and and make knowledge out of the world. Yeah, at least some closer version to that truth, right? As we go along on those journeys. I think that's an excellent insight, Andrew. And yeah, the the sun represents, of course, enlightenment. If we think of the very simple... Yes, so if you think about the very simple juxtaposition of of these symbols of, of darkness and light, it's pretty obvious what what Plato is, is, is attempting to communicate to us here. Uh, the cave is ignorance. Uh, being outdoors in the light is, is living in reason. And that we're all on a progression from that cave to living in the light of reason. And education certainly was seen from them, their standpoint, and certainly from ours in the United States and, and the modern world, that education is an important thing to have an informed citizenry uh, is an important thing to the continuance of our of our species and and our planet. That if we choose to stay in the cave, that's where the mistake is. We're all on a on a on a journey out of that cave, but there are those that willfully choose to stay in the cave because. The cave is more comfortable. The cave is what we already know, those shadows on the wall. The shadows are easy to look at. They're not hard on the eyes. It's not bright. The cave is a place of comfort that we don't necessarily want to leave. But we all know that educating ourselves and becoming more informed about things is work. And that work, though it leads to something eventually very good, that work is hard work. And so I think that's, I think that's the error, um, is, is to willfully stay in the cave. So, so maybe we transition to talking about, uh, about the prisoner and and what he's supposed to do 
now that he's left the cave, you know, he asks, you know, what, what do I, what is my role here? Do I go back into the cave? Do I stay out here and be enlightened? Whatever that means. Right. So I, I believe that, uh, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm, why am I saying I believe? So the prisoner, according to Plato, is supposed to, or I think they have the obligation, I forget how it's worded, uh, to go back down into the cave and try to try to convince people to uh, to kind of escape. Is that correct? Yeah, he asks, you know, thinking to himself, the prisoner, you know, he's like, why on earth would I want to go back in, down in there and think as they did in such ignorance when I now know what I know? Um, and I think maybe even the line is like, what is it worth right. the wisdom of the cave? What is the wisdom of the cave? Well, it's, there's no, there's hardly any wisdom in it at all. Um, but he considers, you know, what would it be like if, if he did go back down in there? How would the reaction from his former prisoners be? Something to consider is, you know, when he goes back down there, what would the kind of situation like for one? I mean, there's a few things in what I'm about to say, but uh, to go back down in the cave for one, for two, uh, is it his obligation to to force them out of the cave or is it to just loosen their bonds so that they have the ability to escape and, and tell them about the real world? Um, or three, there's, there's kind of this sense, I don't think it's mentioned in the text, but I've always considered, well, what if... What if this prisoner chooses to stay once he's in the cave? What if he chooses, he's, uh, he likes the cave, he thinks it's comfortable? Um, so those are three very broad and open questions that I'm shooting right back at you. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I guess maybe the answer is, is sort of in the text. So the idea of the prisoner going back down into the cave and finding comfort in it, I think, is is a pretty relatable idea, actually. You might think, hey, once I'm enlightened, I really just want to to remain enlightened. Why would I ever want to go back down into the cave? But you know, I think about I think about adults as they grow older, this this nostalgia for when things were a, a, a different time, a simpler time when when they were younger. And adults think back to high school. They're like, oh boy, if I could just live one day again in high school, uh, in a way that's sort of like going back into the cave. Um, and I think what people would find is, is they do that, is that even though the, their new enlightenment might be a burden, they go back to high school, you know, <laughs> to use this metaphor, they go back to high school and they find like, wow, like this was a good time when I was a teenager, but now it's really seems kind of empty. And that might be kind of one of the lies of nostalgia, if you think about it. Um, but, you know, the prisoner very well might find it more comfortable in the cave and want to stay there. And, and you know, I, I think of the, the image of the ostrich sticking his head in the sand uh, to avoid the reality that is really out there once, the, you know, once you understand what the reality is. And as far as the obligation of the enlightened, uh, Plato addresses this directly. Let me find the quote edit out me flipping pages here. Plato says, 
then it is the task of us founders, meaning the enlightened, to compel the best natures to attain that learning which we said was the greatest, both to see the good and to ascend that ascent. And when they have ascended and properly seen, we must never allow them what is allowed now. And what is that, pray, says Glaucon. Socrates says, to stay there and not be willing to descend again to those prisoners and share in their troubles and their honors, whether they are worth having or not. And for me, that's a really strong state. Something, a question that I have for you, I guess for anyone really, um, <laughs> but it's it's kind of interesting, I think, that he's not asking them, the prisoner, to go release them and, and kind of force them back up, right? He's going, he's asking the prisoner to go back down and kind of push them to be a little bit more reasonable. Mm-hmm. Just be a little a little better than you are. Like, maybe, maybe we do stand up and turn around and look at the fire. I guess my question, why is... Why Socrates not saying, you know, uh, you have to go down, release them, and then push them all the way back up to the top, and then... Does this make sense? It does. and I, So I think part of that answer is, and whether it was fair or not, was, um, was the Greek conception of people themselves and what people are naturally capable of. Uh, certainly the Greeks had a slave class and the Greeks did not believe that the slaves were really able to, to think as they could. And, you know, then you sort of had a middle class, if you will, the merchants, the soldiers. Um, and, you know, this is why Plato advocates for philosopher Kings. Um, you know, the philosopher Kings probably in Plato's conception are, are those ones who are able to be enlightened to that point that they have that full capacity to reason at its highest level. Whereas maybe your merchant uh, is able to think a little farther along than maybe a slave. And again, that's all very much so based on the Greek conception of, of human ability. Um, but I think that's one answer to it. I think the other answer to your question is what was the ultimate fate of the real Socrates, not the fictional one that is here in Plato's Republic. Um, course there's some question as to whether or not socrates was fictional in plato's republic but um but of course the the ultimate uh end for socrates was that he was executed by the people of athens for his beliefs um whatever the charges were well i don't want to get into that hang on scratch that <laughs> we'll just say he was executed for his beliefs uh, executed for his beliefs because Socrates was telling people about the sun, if you will, and exposing their ignorance. And that was frustrating to them. And so, you know, going back down into the cave and sharing in their uh, troubles and their honors, whether they're worth having or not, for it may be a bit of warning from Plato. He's like, you don't want to push uh, too far because people's natural reaction is to resist new knowledge if that new knowledge is too radical for them and uh and end up being executed like like his his great mentor socrates was 
I think going back to the Greek view is certainly the the place that I was hoping we would go to. Um, and this might be kind of a side tangent and, and uh, a place for another episode. But, you know, as you as you talked about the, the middle kind of class uh, who might not be able to afford this kind of philosophical education uh, or, or be these people who are allowed to leave the cave or whatever, um, just thinking about Plato himself, I believe he was from kind of a, a wealthier family and had the ability to go and study philosophy in a lot of places. Um, so that might be one one reason that he was kind of advocating for the philosopher <laughs> philosopher king in that position. Because I was just thinking about Socrates before you mentioned him. I, I just wonder how how much he would have differed in his idea. I mean, Socrates was a poor uh, guy who had no job and was just you know, walking around in the, in the streets and messing with people, you know, <laughs> he wasn't some fancy philosopher king. It's true. It's true. So that's a bit of a side tangent, but may, maybe an episode for another day. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> well, Andrew, uh, I love talking about this with you. Uh, clearly the both of us could have much more to say, and, and we do have much more to say, and we'll probably save that for another episode. So it's probably time that we move on over to the Quote Corner. All right, folks, welcome to the Quote Corner, the part of the podcast where we take a philosophy quote, discuss it briefly, and then rate it on a scale of one to five stars. So this week it is my choice for a quote and I have chosen a quote from Blaise Pascal, a 17th century philosopher. And the quote is, All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly alone in a room. Which is a really fun quote. So I think I ran onto this quote for the first time actually about a year ago when quarantine started. Because <laughs> suddenly we all found ourselves sitting alone quietly in a room. And, uh, and a lot of people had different reactions to that and made us a little restless. So, uh, but it's an interesting quote. It's an interesting idea. Our inability, uh, all of our problems, of course, all is a very big word, but all of humanity's problems comes from our inability to sit quietly alone in a room. Andrew, what, what do you think um, sitting alone in a room, why is that a problem? You know, this is the first time that I've actually encountered this quote. And if I didn't know Pascal, I would uh, assume that it was a quote from today. (laughs) (laughs) When I read this quote, just like I said, I was interpreting it from my so-called modern view. Sitting alone in a room I took to mean sitting by myself uh, with no technology or anything would, would be problematic for me. And I'm sure for most people. And I think this is this is something that I've been thinking about since quarantine, like you said. I don't think uh, it has to be that 17th century interpretation where we're sitting in a room alone. Because even if we're sitting in a room alone now, like so many of us are, uh, we still have this nifty little device in our pocket that can connect us with a lot of people very easily. But I think when we're kind of, when we don't have access to that or when we limit our access to that and we're still in a room alone. 
it is a very vulnerable place for us and something that we don't spend too much time in. Yeah, it makes me think of the issue that we have of having to face ourselves. You know, you set, you talk about sitting quietly alone in a room. That means for me, most of our distractions are set aside. And when most of our distractions are set aside, because we live in a very distracted world, suddenly we're faced with ourselves. And if a person doesn't practice a type of inward reflection, uh, whether that's journaling or, or, or just thinking about yourself and your ideas and your relationships to other people and all those sort of self-reflective type things, if you're not a person that practices that type of stuff, suddenly being alone in a room and, and, uh, and, and having to sit quietly reveals yourself to yourself. And, uh, and that can be, that can be a very disturbing experience, even if you are someone who's self-reflective. Right. I was, I was thinking about this, uh, real quick and this certainly I, I've, I'm, I would say that I've tried to practice this and I'm going to disagree with that practice, but in the past, at least I've noticed it probably for the past five or so years, meditations become a really big thing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would say, you know, meditation, it's great, but you are, in a sense, purposely blocking out this voice in your head. And Mm -hmm. so, in a sense, you know, I really like meditation. I think it's, it's important and it's great. But you're doing something kind of unnatural at the same time. You're blocking out this voice in your head, uh, which isn't bad, you know, really. But I don't know. Um, sometimes, kind of like you're saying, I feel like you just kind of have to face it sometimes. And I think that's where this inward reflection that you're talking about happens. Like like journaling, uh, like you say you, you do every morning and something that I've certainly tried to start um, but when we're kind of engaging with that part of ourselves and seeing who we truly are, uh, at the, at the root of ourselves. Right. Well, boy, this is a really deep, uh, this can be a really deep talk topic. Uh, it, you know, it makes me think of, uh, concepts of ego and the self and, and even, right. you know, you mentioned meditation, I think of the Tao Te Ching, uh, and, uh, some other related readings I've had with that and, um, yeah, this is a really interesting topic. We should we should put it on the list of things we to, should uh, to talk about on the website. <laughs> I mean, on the podcast, uh, this issue of uh, shutting out the the voice and experiencing the silence of ourselves. I think that's uh, a great idea. Versus uh, versus some sort of heavy self reflection. This is good. Well, uh, let's give this uh, let's give this quote a rating, Andrew. What are you going to to give this quote? So this is zero from five. Uh, for, for those who didn't listen to the last episode, I think we gave a five the Socrates, and we haven't given this one a zero. We haven't given anyone a zero yet. So right. I, I'm going to give this one a 3.9 out oh, of 3.5. Yes. Um, okay. I don't know why yet. I'll think about that while uh, you you give your rating, but that's where I'm leaning to. How about you? Well, I'm avoiding these points other than point fives. So <laughs> I'm going to give the, it's basically the same rating. I'm giving this one a four, 
And here's why. Uh, first of all, Pascal says all of humanity's problems oh, and all gosh. of an awfully big word in philosophy to use. Uh, so it gets downgraded slightly for that. I feel that uh, that experience is a little more nuanced than than a very large blanket statement like all all of humanity's problems. Uh, and uh, and I guess the other reason for the four instead of a five or a four point five would be. Um, Nope, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's my only justification for it. Uh, everything else is really interesting. It's an intriguing quote to think about. Yeah, I, I agree. It's an intriguing quote. I maybe it's the all that you mention. I don't know. It's it's not. Uh, it certainly is something fun to think about, uh, but it's not something for me that's totally mind shattering yet. Uh, yeah if that makes sense. So that's why I'm not giving it, it a little bit higher of a score. Alrighty, that's about it, folks. We'd love it if you would leave a positive review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. By doing so, of course, you will know when new episodes drop. But it also can help encourage others to engage with philosophy, something we hope will lead ultimately towards a life more meaningfully lived. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions you'd like for us to specifically address on the show, please email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at D underscore Parsonage, P-A-R-S-O-N-A-G-E. I also have a personal website dedicated to my philosophical wonderings at curiositymanifold.com. Would love to see you there. I currently don't have any media platforms to be followed on at the moment, but I do have a few things in the works, so stay tuned, and in the future, that platform will be available. All right. Thank you for listening. Andrew, thanks for potting with me. Of course. We'll see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you next time. And remember, when your life seems to be in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.